watching the rise and fall of human systems. Light radiates in a pattern of expanding waves. Is there life elsewhere? How does it affect us? These are big questions. Yet the meaning of all this to us is far from ordinary. You're listening to Transistor, a science series from PRX. I'm Michelle Thaller, and I'm an astronomer at NASA. So what do you think scientists talk about when we're all hanging out together at cocktail parties? I mean, obviously we talk about science news and what planet NASA is visiting next, but you might be surprised how much we talk about things that are more close to the Earth, specifically climate change. Climate change is on our minds a lot. And when you get together with other scientists, you talk about things like retirement plans. I mean, how is this going to affect the way we retire? Do you want to move to Florida? I mean, the coastline may be changing soon. Do you want to move to Southern California? Well, there's going to be problems with drought and fires. So if anybody tells you that scientists aren't thinking about these things, that we're so lost in talking about, oh, the Big Bang and cosmology and distant galaxies, when you actually get us together in a closed room and we start talking about things that worry us, our fears, number one, climate change. One of the things I really love about astronomy is it's not just about distant, faraway things, you know, galaxies that are millions of light years away. The nearest planet we have is the one we're standing on. And if you want an example of how a planet works, of how it can sustain life, of how it changes over time, you have to start with the Earth. The thing about change is that being an astronomer, I know the universe is actually this incredibly vibrant, dynamic, kind of dangerous place. Stars explode, black holes form, you you see things colliding, you have asteroids, even planets. So I'm used to the idea that things sort of hang in a balance. And when you look around our own solar system, our sister planets right around us, you see that planets can change really dramatically over the course of their lives. One example is Mars. Billions of years ago, Mars had a climate that was much more like the Earth. There was water, there were oceans, there would have been rain and snow falling from the sky. But over millions of years, Mars changed. It actually became very dry, very cold. And if any life did get started there, it had to retreat into the rocks underground. And another planet is the planet Venus. I can pretty much guarantee that you've seen the planet Venus. It used to be called the evening star when it sort of is close to the sun in the evening sky. It's beautiful and it's bright and it looks so pristine and pure up there in the sky. In reality, it's an incredibly dramatic vision of hell. You know, sulfuric acid rains 800 degrees on the surface. But to me, it's even more poignant because it's a bit of a warning to us. The Earth could become more like Venus. And it most likely will over billions of years. But are humans going to help it along on that path? That's really something to think about. One of the ways we can really get a connection between why Venus is so important to Earth is to talk to Lori Glaze. Lori is the deputy director of the Solar System Exploration Division at NASA. And she knows, well, pretty much everything about Venus. But more importantly, Lori is into big hair. Lori and I are both big hair sisters because, yes. you know, this is this is as little as my hair gets. Yeah. You know, being a, being a teenager in the 1980s, you know, I can yeah, just yeah. tell that you're you're waiting. Oh, you're, you're you're waiting for big hair to come back. And, and then you are you are so there. Firmed. 
Oh, I want my perm back. <laughs> big, big hair is our friend. I feel better with big hair. Yes, definitely. But we digress. Back to Venus. You know, a, a lot of people, okay, well, they've heard of the planet Venus. It's actually one of the more beautiful objects in the night sky. Yes. One of the things that always amuses me is that whenever Venus is really bright, you'll get this uptick in UFO reports because because people are like, hey, there's a bright thing in the sky. It's like, yeah, it's Venus. It's Venus. It's there it's, a lot. Right. Yes. But tell me about the planet. Venus is the second planet in our solar system, second closest to the sun, and we're the third, so we're both pretty close neighbors. Venus is pretty similar in size to Earth, both in diameter and in mass. And again, in the same part of the solar system, probably formed about the same time as Earth and from more or less the same materials as Earth. But somewhere along the way, Venus and Earth went totally different paths. Venus now has a very, very dense atmosphere made mainly of carbon dioxide. At the surface, the atmosphere is so thick and so heavy and so dense that you can melt lead at the surface. It's very, very hot, 450 degrees Celsius, and it's got an atmospheric pressure that's about 90 times what we have here on Earth. So that's about being like about a mile underwater. That's how much pressure the atmosphere would put on you if you were standing on the surface of it's Venus. It's incredible. It would crush you flat, basically. It would crush you flat. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, one of the really weird things about Venus, the way that it's really different from the Earth, is the length of its day. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, there's two interesting things there, and that is that Venus rotates extremely slowly on its axis, and it actually rotates backwards compared to Earth and Mars and the other planets in our solar system. And it rotates so slowly on its axis that it takes longer to go all the way around one time on its axis than it takes for it to travel all the way around the sun. So the day is longer than the so year. So the day is longer than the year. But now, one of the things that, that's so compelling about Venus, you know, it's this really, really extremely harsh place. Correct. You know, I mean, not only is it hellishly hot, you know, 900 degrees Fahrenheit. It's like being a mile under the ocean. Another fun fact is that the it's raining sulfuric acid, although the ground is so hot it never gets there. It evaporates before it, it, exactly uh, it hits right. the ground. Yeah. So... Was Venus always like this, or do we think it changed over time? We don't think it was always like that. As you say, it's a hellish place right now. Venus today is one of the driest places. It's extremely dry, almost no water in the atmosphere, very little compared to what we have here on Earth. But in the past, we really think that Venus started out very similar to Earth, perhaps had water, a great deal of water similar to what we have on Earth, oceans, global oceans, similar to what we have on Earth. But somewhere along the way, all of that water went away. We don't know how or why. And then also over time, the greenhouse effect really just went crazy on Venus. There's a lot of carbon dioxide, as I said, very thick atmosphere full of this greenhouse gas. So the sunlight comes into the atmosphere, it's trapped, and that's what drives those really high surface temperatures and has driven this greenhouse condition that is now just runaway. Well, it's just like being in your greenhouse. You have a greenhouse in your backyard with a little glass, right? So the sunlight can come in, the visible light can get in, but the thermal energy can't get back out through the glass. And so that's how your greenhouse works. And then to a lesser degree, this is what we talk about with Earth's climate change, that as we put more carbon dioxide into our own atmosphere, the greenhouse effect is sort of accelerated. It's, it's made stronger. It's made stronger and stronger, that's right. Does studying the comparative climates of planets, does it give you any insight into our own planet and, and what, what's going on right now when people have heard about climate change? And you know, it, it, it's certainly worth mentioning that the trends we're talking about in terms of planets are much, much longer time frame. I mean, these are things that take millions of years or hundreds of millions of years. The thing that we've seen recently with the Earth is a very quick change. 
Right. We need to keep our eyes out for the kinds of long-term trends that could be potentially signs of what could happen in the future. And as I said, on, on Venus, we did see major changes where there was probably a much more Earth-like environment there, a much more Earth-like climate that now has eventually over time become a runaway greenhouse. And that's certainly something that is a potential, not to say that it's a for sure outcome for Earth, but it could happen here as well. So we can learn from from all of the other planets in our solar system by looking at their environments and their climates. And again, comparing helps us to better understand how our climate works and what the potential endpoints are for, for Earth's climate. Being somebody who's often in the public eye, people will often ask me, what sort of cosmic catastrophe are you worried about? People, of course, have heard about things like supernovae, exploding stars, gamma ray bursts, or a giant meteorite that's going to come and smack the Earth just like all the dinosaurs got wiped out. And they're always surprised when I, I, I sort of shake my head and say, you know, don't you understand something incredibly dramatic is happening here? And that's climate change. It's almost like we see this dinosaur impactor event coming, but it's just going to kind of ease its way in little by little. And we're not really going to notice it day to day. But all of a sudden, in 500 years, the Earth is going to be a really different place. So what do you do? How do you get people ready for this event? Nobody wants to talk about this gradual thing that humans are driving. So let's be very clear here. There is a scientific consensus that climate change is not only happening, but that it's driven by human activity. And this is something that David Grinspoon has been thinking about a lot recently. Yeah, so I'm David Grinspoon. I'm an astrobiologist. I'm a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute. And currently, I'm also a distinguished visiting scholar at the Library of Congress in astrobiology where I recently completed a year as the inaugural chair of astrobiology. Throughout his career, David has studied how planets evolve and how the climates change over time and how life adjusts to that climate change. And right now, David's been thinking a lot about, well, us. You know, one of the things I've heard you talk about is that you think we're entering a new geologic age. And the, the term is Anthropocene. Yeah, so the Anthropocene is the word now that people are using it is meant as a geological term. Geologists have referred to our current time until recently as the Holocene. But now scientists are saying, no, we're no longer in the Holocene. We're in this new time, the Anthropocene, which is characterized by this new geological force that is rapidly changing the Earth. What is that new geological force? It's us. And that's, in a way, sort of a shocking thing to say, and it may seem sort of self-aggrandizing. And yet, if you look at what's happening to the planet, there's so many natural systems that are being really perturbed and not in a subtle way. The carbon dioxide has gone up by more than 30% in my lifetime. The hydrological cycle of the planet is completely different. And you can go through and look at the nitrogen cycle, the phosphorus cycle, the changes in chemistry of the ocean. These are geological scale changes, and they're happening because this one species has built this civilization and is doing all these things. And so it is a new kind of geological force on the planet. And I think that naming it like that helps us sort of get our heads around the effect that we're having on this planet. And that's a good thing because just becoming aware of it is the first step. One of the things I, I think people are becoming more aware of now is that planets change. It's amazing to me how extreme some of this change is in planets nearby, besides Earth. Obviously, given current events, the notion of global change and planetary change has taken on this sort of sense of urgency. It's no longer 
just an academic question that we're interested in because we're curious about how planets change. It's become sort of a, a survival necessity to know that. Clearly, the Mars we see today is not the Mars that once was. We see all kinds of signs of a, of a different world there. And same thing with Venus and other places. So when we're trying to interpret what we find there, naturally it brings us to these evolutionary questions of not just what are the planets like now, but what are their stories? What are their life stories? And that involves sometimes very dramatic changes. How do you talk to people about this? Actually, I found that talking to people about climate change and other planets sometimes does help sort of diffuse those hostilities and those tensions because it is a way of talking about climate change, but from a very different angle. The argument I hear about Earth is, well, climate has changed in the past, so climate change isn't any big deal. Why should we worry about it? And the problem with that argument is that if Earth now went through the kinds of changes that it went through in the past, yeah, life would survive, but human civilization wouldn't. And that's the thing is we've created this much more fragile part of the Earth, namely our civilization, that could not withstand some of the kinds of changes Earth has gone through in its natural lifetime. And the rate of change now compared to the natural changes that we've seen in the past is really, really fast. And yeah, Earth does adjust and ultimately recover from almost any kind of insult you can throw at it, given enough time, given a million years, the climate change we're causing, Earth will bounce back. But the question is, will we still be here? You know, we're, we're threatening ourselves. How do you deal with the anxiety of, of knowing that the Earth is in a balance and we might be messing with that? Well, I have something that I call cosmic optimism, which is that there's a sense in which when I step really far back, I don't even think what happens here on Earth is that important. If I really thought that we were the only intelligent life in the universe, then I would think we had a lot more responsibility. And, and we do have responsibility. And I, I feel that we have to obviously work for the, the, quote, good future to use our ingenuity and our science to solve our problems and build a more sustainable society. And, I, and actually, I'm hopeful that we can solve all that. I also have a sense that the Earth is very, very resilient and the biosphere is very, very resilient. I don't think there's realistically any danger that we're going to destroy the planet or even ultimately harm the biosphere all that much. We are, I think, causing a mass extinction. Still, when you step back and look at the big picture, what we're really threatening is ourselves. And that's who we have to try to save. And I very much would like to think that through these planetary explorations and the knowledge that we're generating and the perspective we're generating, we're we're helping with that effort. From an astronomical perspective, I have to say the Earth is going to be just fine, whatever we do. And also life is fine. We can find examples of life, little bacteria that live miles up in the atmosphere or down in gold mines, miles below the surface of the Earth. What we're really threatening is ourselves. We're threatening the people, the animal life, the plant life that lives on the planet right now. It's going to change unless we do something about it. So going back to that scientist cocktail party, yes, we're all really honestly worried about climate change and what it's going to do not only to our future, but especially for our children and our grandchildren. And I have trouble talking to kids about this. Kids come to NASA. I give them this wonderful tour. I show them all these beautiful pictures of the Earth we're taking. And they'll ask, you know, what's going on? You know, what can we do to make this better? And there's no easy answer. 
there isn't a single thing an individual can do or a single thing a country can do or even a single thing the entire world could do that will solve this. But there still is the chance for better outcomes. Some climate change is going to happen. We're beyond the point of no return for some things. There will be an ocean level rise. There will be a temperature increase. But there are better and worse scenarios. And this is where, as human beings, I really have some faith in how ingenious and how resilient we can be. We can address the changes. We can find ways to grow food more efficiently. We can bring people in from the coastline, find ways to get people clean, fresh water. These are solvable problems. Human culture can adjust to the changes that climate change will bring, and we can make sure that the worst scenarios don't play out. But the thing that has to happen first is we all have to start to care about this. And this may be the start of something wonderful. This may be the start of the whole world having to get together and actually figure out how to take care of this treasure, this one place that we know life exists in the entire universe, the Earth. The Transistor podcast series is brought to you by PRX. This episode was produced by Lauren Ober with help from Whitney Jones. It was supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information on Sloan at sloan.org.